Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. So... I'm going to come up with another yard site. Happens to be that tomorrow is Zion Adar. That's Moshe Rabbeinu, obviously. I'm not going to give a podcast on Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's also the Kleoker, as it happens to be. He's one of my interesting figures, interesting characters. Uh, Rafaim Lunchitzer, Shlomo Rafaim Lunchitzer. I know the name doesn't necessarily mean anything to you, but everybody's heard of the Kleoker, and that's his most famous book, and that's quoted in Torahs all the time. Everybody in a shul or anywhere they got his Torah, they're going to do a Kliyakar. And here you have a famous rabbi. They're not the same. They're, each one of these people is a different and unique personality. That's what makes it interesting. Otherwise, it'd be boring. You know, then the person was a genius, a big rabbi, had a long beard, and he died. You know, that would be boring. Each one is interesting. The Kliyakar, or by Fram Blunchitzer, as they call him, was in Poland, in the golden age of the Jews in Poland. He lived like from 1540, I think, to 1620. He was about 80 years old when he died, something like that. And uh, that was the time to live in Poland. I mentioned last week that once upon a time, the Jews, the Ashkenazic Jews, I'm speaking about the Ashkenazim, <clears throat> used to be in a place called Ashkenaz, which was first France and then Germany. But then they eventually kicked out of there by the anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages. And they ended up in this gigantic country called Poland, the Kingdom of Poland, which no longer exists. And there the Jews settled down and they did well for a variety of reasons that I won't the prize. And not only did they do well politically and e- economically, but because they're Ashkenazic Jews, they're very culturally insular, or as we would say today, very from yeshivish. And so the result was that they used the money to build up a whole network of yeshivas and learning and things like that. And that's what they mean when they say the golden age of the Jews in Poland. From He lived in the right time, in the 1500s and in the first half of the 1600s, if you were Jewish and you lived in Poland and you knew how to make a living, there's always poor people, but there are plenty of people that weren't, then you did pretty well and uh, it was a good economy and the Jews were pretty much left alone as long as they paid high taxes, which they did. And then the Jews really ran their own uh, show. It's like living a state within a state almost. Just imagine a th- uh, 500 curious Yoels, you know, to use American uh, terms. Something along, not exactly because they didn't have all Jewish towns, but something along those lines. And uh, the big rabbis at that time were big rabbis because people with money sent their kids to yeshiva or they had hired private tutors. In other words, if you were rich, take, for example, the father of Ramah, who also lived in the early 1500s. He was loaded. He was a very successful businessman. He didn't send his son to college. That's not what you did in the 1500s. He hired for him super teachers to teach the kid at a young age, you know, Gemara and Pilpul and Lumdus and all this sort of thing. Because Ramo was a genius, so it worked. And so the father could say, see, I got all the prestige out of it because my son became a Godel Hador, and his name will resound forever, forever throughout history. Didn't need to send him to become an accountant and make a little bit extra money or a doctor or something like that. I wanted him to be a famous Jew. That's the environment, the atmosphere you had long ago in the golden age of Jews in Poland. Then things went bad, but I'm talking about when the times were good. And Rafaim Lunchitz, who was the artist tomorrow, the Kliyokar, he lived at that time. See, you have to have mazel and luck 
to live at the right time in the right place, as we in America perhaps know. And um, so he was, you know, your typical situation, a smart boy. He went to yeshiva, I think, by the marshal. Not that that means anything to you. And uh, he was very good in learning. And later on, he became a rav and a rosh yeshiva. But that's not where his unique talent was. This is what makes things interesting. I told you, these are real people, not cookie-cutter individuals. People going to yeshiva aren't necessarily all the same. They might be all smart in learning. I'm serious. They're going to be very good in learning. But that's not what particularly turns a guy on. Somebody might be drawn, for example, to halacha. There are certain types like that. And other people are not drawn to halacha. They're into lambdas. It's just a different type. And the third type of person uh, was into what we would say today, agarata, machshava, musr, the non-legal parts of the rabbinic uh, literature. And that was him. Ephraim Lundschitzer, Shlom Ephraim Lundschitzer. He was a big gadol, and he knew how to learn all that. It goes without saying. He was a rabbi in Prague, for example. That's no small business. He was a Russian yeshiva in places, which means he had to give shiurim. So as far as the Gemara and the halacha, that he knew. But his unique talents lay in being a fantastic speaker. This is going to sound silly, but you know what I mean. He was like a rabbi friend at that time. The, 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 the koch was being a very good speaker, sought after speaker. And not everybody can speak. I got news for you. In the old types of rabbis from long ago, speaking was not on the uh, on the chart. The overwhelming majority of our great gedolim in the past couldn't speak to save their lives because that's not what the community hired them for. They hired them to be a, a genius in in, in, in Gemara and lumdus and all that sort of thing to speak over everybody's head. Otherwise, if you're not, what kind of a gadol are you? And to run a little yeshiva, perhaps uh, sometimes large yeshiva, in which you do all the lumdus with the guys. In addition to that. A rav had to be a posek. Uh, I'm talking about people, rabbis of communities. They didn't have rabbis of a show like we have nowadays. And they certainly weren't clergy people. And therefore, the job of the rabbi is to sit and learn, to teach smart people, and to preside over Bayesden, and answer hard shilos. And that's basically it. So for that, all you have to do is just have a big brain. You don't speak at a bar mitzvah. You don't speak at a funeral. You don't give speeches on Shabbos, obviously. You don't go around and visit the sick. And, you know, you certainly don't spend all your time, you know, attending uh, silly functions that would have just to kiss up to some rich people. None of that. They're expected to, to, to sit and learn. Matter of fact, there's a very famous story. How's it go? In Vilna, at the time of the Vilna Gaon, reminds me, there was a rabbi there who was hired by the community to be the communal rabbi, and they fired him because they said, we walked by your house at 2 in the morning, and the lights were out. We're sitting, we're paying you to sit and learn 24-7. What's wrong with you? You know, so that's what the job of the rabbi was. Now, it doesn't automatically mean, if somebody's big in learning, that they can't speak to save their life. That's usually the way it is. But you had exceptions. And Kliyaka was an exception. He happened to be very good in learning, but he also was an unbelievably good speaker. In Yiddish, of course. Unbelievably good speaker. And when I say good speaker, with all the tricks of the Magid of old, here we come into a very interesting office that doesn't really exist anymore. In the old days, long ago, they would divide up the religious leadership into two roles. A and B. A was the Rav, like I just described before, the learner, the posek, that sort of thing, the Basin guy. And B was somebody called the Magid. Now what you think, some traveling itinerant, whatever. There was to be an official position in the city. The person who's a Rav, his job is to become an expert in the Halacha and the Gemara and the Mepharshim. And that's a whole lifetime, you know, a business. He doesn't need to know the Agatha parts, what you call the Ein Yaakov. He doesn't need to know the Midrashim and the stories. Because that's not what his skill set requires. 
He has to know the Shalos and Chuvis. He has to know the legal precedents. He has to be able to think in a legalistic way, in a creative way. You know, that's what the job required. But people, most people, aren't into learning. They admire somebody who's a big learner. But think, for, just off the top of my head, think of the women who weren't into learning at all at that time because, you know, it was a separate society. And think of most of the men, to be perfectly honest. And if you want to get really down and dirty, even most of the guys who learn the yeshiva can't learn that well. So they're not going to go and, you know, listen to some fancy-schmancy shear from uh, some uh, genius on uh, some recondite topic and know what he's uh, talking about. They might pretend they do, they would nod their head. It's not really for them. The public wants a speaker who can speak to them at their level and can explain the Torah in plain words in a way that brings a Musser Haskell or makes you feel good or perhaps makes you feel bad. Notice it talks to your heart, okay? That's what they want. And that's the Magid. He was hired by a city usually or something. I had a sizable community. He's supposed to be the speaker on occasions. He will speak on Shabbos. Not, God forbid, before Musaf, but in the afternoon, some places on Friday night, some places during the week. And he's a very good speaker people come to hear. Otherwise, he wouldn't get the job. What makes a Magid? There, you don't have to know all the halach and the, and the pilpul and all that. You have to know the Agadita, what we call today an En Yaakov. En Yaakov is a collection of all the Agadites in the Gemara. He has to know the Medrash. Perhaps I would use the term Chumash and Rashi for the more simple Magids, because Rashi is a collection mostly of Midrashim and things like that, uh, and Agadites. And you have to be able to take those stories that you find in the Gemara, or you find in the Tanakh, or you find in the Medish Rab or places like that, and then you weave them together in such a way to make them relevant to your audience, obviously. So you have to be an expert in Agadita literature. If you want to be a cut above that, then in addition to what I just described, somebody's Magidim would know the Jewish philosophical literature, because we had the Rambam, Mernabuchim, and the, you know, the Kuzari, and the Chobos Alvobos, and Sadiqo, and these are all books of philosophy and Hashkof and ideas, and if you know that, you have a lot of material out of which to build speeches. Take it from me. And uh, they would wow them. The Kli Yakar, whose yard is tomorrow, was the big expert in the 16th century among the Polish Jews, which is the largest Jewish community in the world. He was the big expert in what I just described in the Magidus. It so happened he also wore another hat. He could Paskin Shilas, he was a big rub, he was Rosh Hashiva, he did that too. But where he excelled and what he became famous for was the Agatha stuff, as I just said before, which is why he's beloved by the masses at that time, because they can understand what the guy's saying. You understand? Now, what's really interesting about him is, first of all, he published a lot of his stuff in books, and I'll get to that a little later, but those are very good cheater books for any rabbi uh, who's worth 10 cents. I mean, people should know that sort of thing. But he also made the Kliyakar, which is just, uh, you know, Vorts on the Parsha, shall we say, commentaries on the Parsha, and that's a hot bestseller, and the the, I won't say the unique, but one of the unique things about him is a big social critic. People liked him because he called it like he saw it, and he wasn't afraid to tell the rich people to jump in a lake if they're doing something wrong, and he wasn't afraid to call out the hypocrites in front of their face, in front of their face, and that's why he had a lot of stellars, because after a while, the powers that be didn't like somebody who speaks a little too plainly and lets him have it and calls it like he sees it, and they would move on to another town. That's kind of the idea. I just opened at random my Klee Yucker to have next to me in my office and I see now we're in Bayikra and then the next week is Bayikra so I'm looking at Mitzora in a couple of weeks and he's a long business in Pachim Mitzora Taras about the Lashon Hara you know Taras is for Lashon Hara they say 
And I'll just quote you a tiny passage. He says, he has a long passage, and he says, Why am I going so long? Because you guys stink. I got a little bit off track. To speak a Lashon Hari, even if it's not directly about the Parsha, because I see that this generation is lousy with Lashon Hara. But Saras Neshenesi, this generation, he's talking to his audience, which, by the way, were VIPs and rich people. This generation is a generation of leprosy. <laughs> not literally, but you know what he means. Everybody's got leprosy. And we've had this problem throughout Jewish history. In Egypt, there were people who tell, you know, who, who were into Lashon Hara. And then it popped up in the second temple also. And today we're in Gauls. It's just getting bigger and bigger. Who knows if it'll lead to a Holocaust or not? That's why I said I'm going to put myself into this subject. Maybe the blind among the Hebrews, meaning the morally blind, will listen and they'll change. My friends, this week is Parsha Zohar. If you want to know what happened in Poland in uh, 1602, in Parsha Zohar, they all went to hear the Kleyakar give a speech. And all the VIPs in Poland were there, the rich and the rabbis. And I let him have it. So he could get away with it because he was that good. But after a while, people didn't like the criticism anymore because... He, 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 he called on a line. He would say, you know, what are you doing with the money to Sadaka now? What happened to the money that was supposed to go to the widows and the orphans? Who's in charge of the basin over here? How come they favored the powerful and they didn't favor the, the way it's supposed to be? It's not fair. And he was a little bit too, too uh, what should I say, too accurate in his uh, depictions. And as a result, um, he raised it to a great level. He's a very good writer. I saw once the Sephardim at that time, always made fun of the Ashkenaz, correctly so, because the Ashkenaz rabbis don't know Hebrew, meaning I'm talking about diktuk, and grammar, and melitza. The forum of our great Ashkenaz, especially in those centuries, you know what they're saying, and they're good writers, but they don't use proper ivrit so well, and they don't use, you know, nouns and adjectives, all the rest of it well. And he does. So he was a very orderly mind, you know, he studied diktuk first. And I once saw a, a Sephardi writer saying, who is this guy? He can't be Ashkenaz. Because he writes a correct Hebrew. They tell me he's in Poland, but I don't believe it. So it's like really funny in that regard. Now, um, me, myself, and I, the, the, you know, if you're in the rabbi business, then he's the uh, author among many books of uh, Ololo Sephraim, which is three volumes. And again, it's a very good cheetah book, like I said a couple weeks ago, but it's Arya Figo. These are, the, these are the meat and potatoes of the old rabbis uh, because he was a speaker's speaker and he published his speeches in popular form so other rabbis could buy it and cheat off of him. And it's called Ola Sephraim. And this is the safer you want to get. Three volumes. This is the safer you want to get because he has a Dvar Torah for every Parsha for a bris. You know what I mean? Let's say you have a bris this week and you want something for Vayikro or next week you have Parsha's Tzav and so forth. All through. He's got something every Parsha in the Chumash for Sheva Brachos. He's got for every Yontif. For Shabbos, for Purim, for Hanukkah, and let me say this, it's not fluff. His ideas are deep ideas. He was a gadol. So he deals with deep deep and heavy ideas, and he will produce them. For example, if he's going to talk about Purim, I'm sure he's going to talk about the Kavlam Harkagigas. You know, how does Purim, they say, Purim remedied the Kavlam Harkagigas, that God forced the Torah on the Jews, and therefore they had a complaint against it, but in the time of Purim they changed it. Why, my friends, 
would Purim be a time which is the opposite of Kuflam Hakagigis? And he'll explain in very uh, solid ways. So this is the book. If you ever need a speech for anything, it's like one of the big three, as I said before. Anybody knows the the Sifrut HaDrush, this genre of great, what's the right word? I hate to use the word sermonic literature because it's much more substantial than that. But that's what it is. Um, the big three are the Azar Yafigo, the Binalitim, and the Ola Safraim of our person today, Rosh Shlomo Zayim Afraim of Lunches, the Kliyakar, and the other one is the Rionis and the, the uh, what do you call it, the uh, Yaris Uh These are uh, w- w- things that made him outstanding and, and separate. Most of his life he was in, in Poland till you know, like, I think until he was like 60 years old. And then when uh, later in life, I think he must have rubbed too many people the wrong way, so he came to Prague. Uh, at the same time as the Maral. As a matter of fact, if you want to know who he was in terms of learning, he succeeded the Maral. The Maral was the Maral of Prague, the rabbi of the community of Prague. You know who, what a giant the Maral was. And when he left, his successor was the Kliyakar. Right? He was the rabbi after Maral. So to be a rabbi of a community like that, you got to know how to learn, baby. matter of fact, Prague was notorious. They would cut you up. The city was full of Talmudic Chachamim, and they liked nothing mm-hmm. but to shecht. They liked nothing but to shecht the rabbi. And then it made him feel good. Mm-hmm. And in order to give a speech successfully, a shear or a Shabbos Gadol or something like that, you had to be prepared to face down your, your critics. And if he was willing to do so, you can imagine it was really impressive. But as I said before, his main mark was an orator and a, uh, a darshan in the highest sense of the word. Now, as I said before, he was very organized and he was not politically correct. So he was afraid, he wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade. And what's really interesting remark about him is he is famous among historians as one of the biggest critics of the yeshiva system. It's funny. Now in Poland, I told you it's the golden mm-hmm. age of Polish Jewry, right? And uh, what do you call it? And the, and the golden age of Polish Jewry, there were yeshivas everywhere. And there was quantity for sure. But he says that the, the system stinks because it's all based on parents wanting to rush their kids too quickly to learn Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. So they could show off the others that their kid is a genius. I'm going to take the time now to read with you a passage or two. It'll take my two minutes or so and translate it to give you an idea of the flavor of his writings and of his criticisms of the Chinuch system at that time. I'll make no comment about the Chinuch system of today. And he has a book, one of his uh, swarms called Amude Sheish, Six Pillars, where he talks about the three pillars. You know, it says in Perkyavas, the world stands on three things, Torah, Vog, Mils, Hasanim, and then it says another three things a few missions later. Din Emes Shalom, I think. So let's talk about Torah. And he says, Amud, it's a short paragraph. Amud HaTorah B'Dorenu Rofeif Ma'ob. The pillar of Torah in this generation is pretty darn weak. But Torah, it's actually, it's, it's, it's hanging on a thread. Ki Bechol Darchi Alimud, because in all the teaching methods in our schools, Ein Ben Mesom, there's nothing good. Miyom Omdo Al Daita Ki Askin. From the time a kid enters the yeshiva system as a kid until he gets old. As soon as a kid is very young, they would start you in Cheder, very young. He's handed off it to a Malamed. What do they teach him Chumash? So the old system was, this week is Pasha Breshis, he learned a few psukim uh, of the course of the week through rote and memorization. He translated into Yiddish. And then next week, Breshish is over. So after learning four or five or six or seven psukim from Breshish, he moved to Noah. 
and do the same thing in Parshish Noach, and then four or five or six or ten Pesukim, and then you move to Lech Lecha, and every week you go back to Parshish Shavuot. So what's the result? The kid is a little kid. He has no idea what's flying. He doesn't know what happened in Parshish Brashas. He doesn't know about Avram Avinu. Ain't no Malamdim came Pir Shamilas. So all you're doing is mem- drilling into his head, like translations of words. Velo Pir Shchibra Pesukim. You don't explain him how the text flows. You don't give him a narrative. Even if he would learn the whole parsha, it's bad enough that he only learns a few psukim here and psukim there. If it's strictly rote translation without any explanation, what's the point? And with this junk in his head, confusion, as soon as possible, he put him in a class to learn Mishnahis and Gemara. If you ask him basic Judaism, tell me about the unity of God, or Kabbalah Sol Shemayim, or Yerush Hashem, you know anything. My friends, this is the way it is. There's a lot of schools out there. I don't want to say too much. You'd be shocked at what the kids don't know. I'm talking about ours by the time they get to high school. And you think they know. How do you teach a kid like that who doesn't know anything? He knows nothing from the Chumash. And his whole education at the young age in Chumash and things like that is nothing but limit aloshan. Turns out to be just translation. Well, it's a translation. He said, get a dictionary. What do you have to go through the Chumash that way? I don't call this limit a Torah. Zu Torah. And then he says, you move to the next stage. They teach him Gemaras, which are not no gay to anything. A kid doesn't need to know that. A kid should know Brachas maybe, Shabbos, you know, practical things that do, do for, for the daily life. So since they learning them, teaching them, uh, like I say, Gitin and Yavomas uh, yeah, and whatever, it's not no gay to him, you forget it as soon as the semester's over. You don't remember anything what you learned. The only thing you can say is he learned the system of the Gemara, you know, the Gemara talk and the Gemara way of thinking. But now he doesn't know a single mitzvah to, to, to do it correctly. And he doesn't know any musr, which would be good for a kid to learn. And he goes on and on and on, and he says, that's why our kids have no derecheretz, and that's why they scream, and that's why they're rough to each other, and boy, oh boy, oh boy. And then he goes after the higher learning, what they used to call the, the, the pilpo and the chalukim, which is very hard to explain in a context like this, and my time's almost out. But the system of learning at that time, I'm talking about the advanced system. They don't have this anymore. What I'm talking about went out of business about 200 years ago, 250 years ago. But they did at that time was wildly popular, and he couldn't take it because the Kliyakar was, among other things, a follower of the morale. He didn't learn, I don't think, by the morale, but he followed the morale, and the morale was a guy who said, Mishnayis, Mishnayis, Mishnayis. Learn the basics, and only then move on to the Gemara. The Kliyakar is very much into this idea. First, you learn Chumash and Tanakh, get that down cold. Then you learn Mishnayis, get that down cold. Then from there, you move on to the Gemara and get that down cold. And then you move to the Lumbas. Meaning, in a curricular fashion, in, 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 in a solid fashion. But he said, I know nobody will listen to me because everybody wants to be a, vil- a little Villagone or something like that. And the parents should show off. And the result is, we have a generation where lots of kids leave the yeshiva because they're frustrated because the learning doesn't work for them because it doesn't work for anybody normal. And a lot of kids who could be in learning, or would be balabatim, who, as we would say today, either attend a dafiyomishir or even give a dafiyomishir, fall by the wayside because it allows the education system. Uh, the truth is, there's a lot more to say on this, but I don't want to take too much time out of here. I would just, uh, maybe another year or something like that. The criticism of the pilpul is very, very interesting.
the, uh, uh, but I won't do it now. I'll simply say that I would recommend, tomorrow's the uh, Zion Adar, is the yard site. You can either do the easy way and look up a Kliyakar. I bet you'd even have those online. He's very, always got good stuff on every parsha. I myself went through a phase where I was into it, but I'm not anymore. It's not, it's not my style. The Olus Ephraim is fantastic. If you have the patience, you're looking for good material on any holiday, if you have, like I say, a bris, uh, a yard site, a sheva brachas, or anything, you know, uh, any of that sort of business. His other drushes are also very good, but you have to be a little bit learned to follow them. They're brilliantly constructed, but they're all based on the fact he expects you to know a certain amount of material. Uh, he is one of the, he had a very orderly mind. That's why he's into Mishnayas first and Gemara later. He just had a naturally orderly mind. That's why he was into Dikduk, in order to do everything in the right way. If he was around today, he would be either considered eccentric or he'd be moving and shaking to try to change the yeshiva system in this way or that way. I don't know. Uh, but, but that's who he was. As a result of this, he was always a controversial figure. And uh, as I said before, he did spend a number of years as a rabbi in Prague, which means that he was trying to sit on a, on a powder keg because everybody's trying to undermine him. Everyone wants to show what a big lambda they are. If you pask in a shaila, everybody say this is wrong. The people don't understand. In the old days, if you came to a community of Talmud Chacham, it's a blood sport to be the rabbi. Anybody volunteer for this job was a gladiator. He had to be ready to take on all kinds of uh, you know challenges and smile and, and, and go with it. So Kliyakar is a very, very unusual person. I would just throw in one last part, and that is he's philosophical. It's clear that he was one of these uh, orators who knew the Rambam's Guide for the Perplexed, the Kuzari, some of these other books, and therefore he's able to use the philosophical concepts of the great Jewish works in the Middle Ages in his drushes, which is something that a lot of people don't do. You know, you see a parsha. we just had Parsha Pekuti, and it said the cloud rested on the, uh, on the Mishkan, and uh, the covet Hashem, the glory of God, filled the Mishkan. What does that mean? What kind of a cloud is it? What do you mean glory? He, he raises these questions. And I'll just end, uh, because it's late, with a classic Kliyakar that I happen to remember for some reason every year, where he really ripped off the hypocrisy. And that's in Parsha Shmini. And how's it go now? It says, Shmini, as you know, is when they dedicated the, they inaugurated the Mishkan. And it says, Kara Moshe Liyarno Israel. And he said to Aaron, Krav El Mizbeach, step forward. You're, today you're going to be inaugurated as Kohen Gadol. Aaron was given uh, a, a, a calf to be a carbon chatos, a sin offering. Ooh, what a diss. And Aaron was embarrassed because he made the golden calf. And the Jewish people were murmuring. And then the Pusik says like this, God says to Moshe, tell the Jewish people, they should bring an eagle, the claw Yisrael should bring an eagle as an ola. Right? And then they bring some other animal, a sawyer or something as the chatos. So why is it that Aaron, he says, is told to bring a calf for a chatos, and the Jewish people are told to bring a calf for an ola? This is a kliyakar now. And he says like this, people are hypocrites. God was saying, cut the baloney. Aaron made the golden calf. That's true. What is a chatos? A chatos is when you do a sin, but it's like bishogeg. You, you, you did the action, but you did not have the intention. Now let's contrast that with a carbon ola. Carbonola is a voluntary offering, because that's a bad machshava. So you didn't do something, but you wanted to. 
which is why an Ola is always a volunteer offering, because how does anybody know what somebody was thinking? If you have a bad conscience, which is a good thing to have, then you want to bring a carbonola because you had bad machshavas. So, God is saying, says the Kliyakar like this, Amron made it, but he didn't believe in it. But you guys believed in it. So, he should bring a chatos, which means he did it, the act, but not the intention. But the Jewish people should bring an ola, which means they believed in it, they just didn't make it because they told Aaron to make it. And so, in the choice of the carbon, God was exposing the hypocrisy of the masses. That's a typical Kliyakar. Our time is up. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.